Well, if you would now, let me ask you to open up your Bibles to the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus. Uh, Let me say a special word of welcome to any guests we may have with us this morning. We are very glad that you are here. And let me also say to anyone that may have forgotten their Bible this morning, you are welcome to use one of the Bibles we have provided for you uh, in the seats in front of you. Uh, If you choose to use one of those Bibles, you'll find our passage this morning on page 95. It's Leviticus 16. Uh, Leviticus 16. Guilt. Guilt is something that we are all familiar with. Guilt is something that we have all known. And perhaps guilt may be something you are dealing with even this morning. There are feelings of guilt. Uh, These feelings come about when we have a troubled conscience our conscience is in turmoil because of something we've done or something we've, we've said. And then there's legal guilt. Legal guilt comes when we've actually committed a crime. We've broken a law. We've transgressed a rule. We are now a criminal. Legal guilt means that we're no longer innocent in any objective or honest way. We are guilty. These two kinds of guilt, guilty feelings and legal guilt, both show up in the pages of the Bible. In fact, all you have to do is start reading at the very beginning. And as we come to that very first sin in the book of Genesis, that of Adam and Eve, we find both kinds of guilt. Adam and Eve eat of this tree which God has commanded them not to eat, And in that one act of rebellion, they become legally guilty before God. He gave them a command, and they broke it. These two people who were created in an innocent state are innocent no longer. Adam and Eve, after the tree, are criminals. They're sinners before the holy law of God. And this objective guiltiness led to subjective guiltiness. After becoming objectively guilty, Adam and Eve began to experience feelings of guilt. After eating the fruit, their consciences are troubled. They are ashamed of what they've done. And we know this because God comes walking in the garden. And what do Adam and Eve do? They hide. Their their feelings of shame paralyze them, isolate them, make them run away from communion with the good God who made them. And then, when confronted by their God, it was these feelings of guilt that led to the beginning of marital strife. As this husband and this wife begin to play the blame game, They try to take God's piercing eyes off of them and what they've done and they try and put God's eyes on someone else. And so Adam says, she made me do it. Eve says, the serpent made me do it. Guilt hates being exposed to the light. This was the first time that shame entered our world. 
Adam and Eve saw themselves in light of what they had done, and they were ashamed. They felt embarrassed, vulnerable. They were naked before Almighty God Himself. And their experience has now become the common experience of all humanity after them. The Bible teaches that all people have the law of God written on their hearts. And all people deep down know that they have sinned and are guilty before God. And you know it too, don't you? You know what it's like to feel your guilt before God. So what do we do with our guilt? Well, we can point out at least three ways that people try and deal with their guilt. Some try to reason their guilt away. They try and justify the things they have done. They try and rationalize those harsh words that they spoke. They look for reasons that would excuse their sins. Sometimes this means contrasting themselves with others. I know I've messed up, but I'm sure not as bad as so-and-so. Right? Sometimes this means shifting the blame to others. I know I have a problem with bitterness, but it's, it's because of my parents and the way I was raised. I, I know I sinned sexually, but it's my boyfriend's fault. Right? He, he was putting the pressure on. Oh, I, I know I tend to make an idol out of money and possessions, but God, that's your fault. You put me in this wealthy country where I'm surrounded by these things all the time. In so many ways, we can try and reason our guilt away. Uh, other people try and deal with their guilt by seeking to escape it. I am convinced that guilt is one of the main reasons that so many people turn to alcohol and drugs and various kinds of substances that cause them to lose their grasp of reality. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Alcohol in the Bible is only ever to be used in moderation and it's always associated in Scripture with feasting and rejoicing. When you're down... When you're discouraged, that is not the time to drink alcohol. Alcohol is a poor comforter. It will enslave you by its comforts. Similarly, when you are feeling guilty for things you have done, alcohol, drugs of various kinds, they are a terrible place to run for solace. They will have their way with you. They will ring you out and leave you broken. Substances like this are a path that lead to disaster. But these are not the only ways that people may try and escape their guilt. Others simply try and lose themselves in their work. Or they become inordinately invested in some hobby. They, they look for some way to keep their hearts and their minds preoccupied. They don't want that quiet moment where suddenly the feelings of guilt rush in. If they're in the car, radio on. Don't let me be in silence with God. When the memory of what we've done or what we may even now be doing 
comes back into our minds. We push it out as quickly as we can and we dive into other things. But this too will leave you broken because you cannot stay on that treadmill forever. If you try, you will eventually collapse. You have to step off from time to time and this means there has to be moments in your heart where you are silent before God and the only way to make that right is you have to find a way to peace. Guilt must be confronted. Guilt must be dealt with. It cannot be escaped. The ultimate attempt to escape feelings of guilt is suicide. But even suicide is a fool's gambit. For the moment we breathe our last in this life, we find that our guilt has followed us into the next. If we haven't dealt with our guilt in this life, our guilt will deal with us in the life to come. I dare suggest that part of what makes hell so terrible is not just the external torment, but the torment within people as they are wrecked and ruined by their feelings of guilt for all eternity. Suicide is never an answer for guilt. Suicide only throws you into the very hands of guilt forever. So reasoning your guilt away, trying to escape your guilt, and then some people try and pay for their guilt. Perhaps I can put my guilt away by working hard and making things right. Sometimes people think they can make it right By punishing themselves. The most extreme form of this is self-injury, right? Sadly, we've known people who cut themselves, who abuse themselves because they believe that somehow by injuring themselves, they are paying for their sins. They're alleviating their guilt. Others, however, try and pay for their guilt through good works, They look for good deeds that they can do to help others in order to make up for the people that they've hurt in the past. Or, they turn to religiosity. They try and be a good person by reading their Bible and praying and giving to the church and mowing their elderly neighbor's lawn, all the while thinking, this will outweigh my sins in the sight of God. Surely this will make up for my lie. This will make up for my lust. This will make up for my anger and my pride. People use religion this way all the time. They get religious hoping it will pay for their guilt. Mount Hermon, let me be very clear. None of these paths are sufficient to deal with your guilt. You will never have peace and be rid of your guilt until you are ready to own your guilt and to acknowledge that there is nothing you can ever do to make it go away. Let me say it again. You will never have peace and get rid of your guilt until you are ready to own your guilt and then acknowledge that there is nothing you can do to ever make it go away. And that's when we're ready for the gospel. That's when we're ready for the greatest news in the world. We acknowledge our guilt. We acknowledge that we deserve hell. We acknowledge that God would be just and right to be angry with us. God would be wicked if he wasn't angry with me because of the things that I've done. 
And when we acknowledge that we are in a hopeless and helpless state, then we're ready to turn to the mercy of God. This has been a long introduction, but I want to prepare you for this text. And so I just want to ask, have you ever come to that point in your life? Are you owning your guilt? And are you ready to acknowledge that there's nothing you can do to get rid of it? My goal in the next few minutes is to show you that Christ's death on the cross not only accomplished the appeasement of God's wrath, propitiation, that's what we talked about last Lord's Supper Sunday, but Christ's death on the cross also accomplished the complete and utter removal of our guilt before God. It is a sweet doctrine. It is a doctrine we call expiation. So everybody say expiation. Hold that word. It's a good one. Love it. Cherish it. It will serve your soul well. Here are two sweet gospel words. Propitiation. Christ fully absorbed the wrath of God that was meant for me. Expiation. Christ has taken the guilt that was mine and he has borne it completely away so that I am guilty before God no longer if I am in Christ. Let me show it to you in the Bible. Leviticus 16. This chapter is about the day of atonement. Uh, It's called Yom Kippur by the Jews. It's the most important day on the Jewish calendar. This was the day when the high priest of Israel would enter the holy of holies. The the high priest represented all the people of Israel and he would go into that innermost chamber of the tabernacle or the temple. And in that innermost chamber, God's presence dwelt in a more powerful way than anywhere else on planet earth. The terrible wonderful, holy presence of God like a hurricane and yet like a whisper dwelt in that room. And following the instructions that God gave in this chapter, the high priest would atone for the sins of Israel. And of course, all of this was pointing to Jesus and the cross all of this was types and shadows teaching the gospel, of mes- the gospel message ahead of time. It was foreshadowing what would happen at the cross. In Leviticus 16, we have propitiation. In Leviticus 16, we have expiation pointing to those things that would be accomplished on Golgotha. You see, there was lots to do before the actual acts of atonement. And you can read all about that in verses 1 through 14. But it's in verse 15 that we get to the heart of the matter. What the high priest did that atoned for sins. In these verses we read of two goats. The high priest would take these two goats and he would cast lots over them. One goat would be for the Lord. This goat would be sacrificed and its blood placed in sacred places. The blood of this goat would satisfy God's righteous wrath against Israel's sin. This first goat was the goat of propitiation. 
But the second goat was called the scapegoat. And the guilt of Israel was placed on the head of this goat. And then it was taken out into the wilderness, far away from the people. Their guilt was taken far away from them. This was the goat of expiation. Okay, let's read the text. Let you see it for yourself. Beginning in verse 15, Leviticus 16, beginning in verse 15. Then he, the high priest, shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people. This is the goat of propitiation. And bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleannesses of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. Now this is the goat of expiation. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness." On our last Lord's Supper Sunday, we discussed propitiation and how sacrificing an animal and applying its blood pointed to the sacrifice of Christ. When Christ's blood was shed, it was a picture of his very life being given. Physical death is a picture of something far more terrible, spiritual death, in which a person is separated from God and experiences his wrath and judgment. But Christ on the cross took the hell his people deserved in their place. Jesus bore the wrath of God as their substitute. He died that they would live. He propitiated the wrath of God so that there is no more condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ, God has no more wrath towards you for your sins. He has only boundless love and compassion and mercy for you. His wrath has been completely wiped away, completely absorbed. Jesus Christ drank the cup of the wrath of God and he drank every drop so that now all that the Father has for you is love with love with love with love with love forever. But now, the truth of expiation. 
because justice has been satisfied, our guilt is removed. The moment we believe on Christ and take Him to be our Savior, our guilt is gone. And we see this taught, especially in verses 20, 21, and 22, and we see it in two steps. So here they are. First, the sin of God's people was transferred to the goat. Right? Transferred to the goat. So this was the teaching that the sin of God's people would later be transferred to the true scapegoat, to Christ. You see this in verse 21. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat. Surely you see that this is a picture of what God did at the cross, laying our sins on Christ. Now let's be crystal clear. It was not our sinful nature that was transferred to Christ. Even as Jesus was on the cross, He was the pure, spotless Son of God. In and of Himself, Jesus was absolutely sinless. But it was our guilt, it was our iniquity before God that was placed on His shoulders. The innocent one bore the guilt of all who would ever believe on Him. He took our guilt so that we could have his innocence before God. Isaiah 53, 6 says it so clearly. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, every one of us, to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The guilt of all God's people, every person who would ever repent and trust on Christ, was placed on him. Now here's what that means. If you're a believer, your guilt before God is no longer on your shoulders. If you feel guilty before God right now, it means your conscience is not believing the gospel. It means your, God, your conscience is either uninformed or it needs to grow in faith Because the gospel is clear. Your guilt has been transferred. You are guilty no longer. Your guilt has been placed on the head of Christ. 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Your deceit. Your manipulation. Your bitterness your jealousy, your gossip, your anger, your lust, your greed, your selfishness, your pride, every wicked thing you've ever said, thought, done, every wicked attitude placed on Christ. And he bore it, and he bore it willingly, and he bore it away forever that's step two christ bore our guilt away (laughs) is that not a wonderful truth church christ bore our guilt away we see it in verses 21 and 22 right aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat confess over it all the iniquities of the people of israel all their transgressions all their sins 
He shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. And the goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. This is a picture of what God has done for us in Christ. The goat was taken out to the wilderness. In in the Old Testament world, the wilderness was seen as a place of darkness, a place of judgment, a place of death, a place away from the presence of God. The idea is you let a lone goat go loose in the wilderness, it's not going to last very long. In fact, later, in later years, the tradition became for that man in readiness, he would actually take the goat to a cliff and then he would push it off and then he would come back. In the same way, Christ bore our sin, taking it on his shoulders. He carried it outside the walls of Jerusalem. He experienced judgment, darkness, and death. And on Golgotha, the Son of God, forsaken by his Father, he was cut off, and our guilt was dealt with once and for all. So let me ask you to do something. Imagine watching this goat being led away from you. Imagine this, the, the high priest giving maybe the leash of the goat to the, to the, the man in waiting, and, and he's walking it, and he's walking it out, outside the city. And as you watch the goat going further and further away from you, what you're seeing is your guilt before God going further and further away from you. It's, it's disappearing. Every sin you've ever committed, it, it's gone. Friends, when we read the Gospels, of Christ carrying his cross, being marched down that Via Dolorosa, that road which led outside the city to Calvary, we should rejoice. That's our guilt going with Christ outside the city. We will dwell with God in the new Jerusalem forever because Christ took our sin and guilt outside Jerusalem and our guilt was dealt with forever there. How does the Bible describe what God has done with our guilt through the cross. Psalm 103.12 God has cast your sins as far away from you as the east is from the west. Isaiah 38.17 God has taken your sins and cast them behind his own back so that they will never be seen by him again. Isaiah 43.25 God blots out our transgressions. It's like when you're writing something and you make a mistake and so you scribble all over it hiding the mistake so that you can never read it again. It's the idea. God's blotting out your sins so that they can never be pulled back up. They can never be seen again. Micah 7.19 God has taken your sins and he has tread them under his foot. Friends, how big do you think God's foot is? When God stomps something into the ground, how far down do you think it goes? And then later in Micah 7, 19, it says, God has cast all our sins into the very depths of the sea. It's the good news of the gospel. If you will just believe on Christ and rest in him, you can be sure that he has dealt with your guilt forever. And it is gone. 
Three implications as we come to the Lord's table. Number one, God is not holding your past sins over your head. You hear me? God is not holding your past sins over your head. It's not as if God is keeping tabs of your sin and saying, if you do that one more time, I'm cutting you off forever. It's not how God operates. Satan may whisper those kinds of things into your ear, but God has put your sins away through Christ and he remembers them no more. And by the way, when we say that God remembers our sins no more, don't picture God as as an old man with Alzheimer's who, who wants to remember something, but he just can't remember. No, it's not that God isn't capable of remembering your sins. Rather, the point is that God chooses Never to remember your sins because they've been dealt with. Second implication. If this is love, for God to put away our sins and remember them no more, then this is how we ought to love others as well. We ought not to bring back up people's past sins in order to accuse them again. How often, and especially marital spats, I think, do we as husbands and wives find ourselves bringing back up the past sins of our spouses? How often do we want to rehash those things that our spouse did wrong a week ago, a month ago, a year ago, a decade ago, even though we know our spouse was sorry and repented long ago? We need to resolve this morning that we will love like our God loves It is love to choose not to call to mind the past sins that have been confessed, forgiven, and dealt with by Christ on the cross. You'll hear people say, forgive and forget. I've even heard people say that you haven't really forgiven if you haven't forgot. Well, that certainly isn't true. Sometimes people will sin against you in ways that you will never be able to forget. Because you'll bear the marks in your life of what they've done for the rest of your life. You won't forget what they did to you. So forgiveness doesn't mean somehow making yourself lose the memory of what someone has done for you. Rather, to forgive means to forget in the sense that you look beyond what was done. You look past what was done. You choose not to bring it back up, not to continue holding it against that person. Like God, you put it behind you and you choose to look on it no more. To forgive is to choose not to allow that past sin to affect your love and your care for that person. Aren't you glad that this is how God has treated us? And if you are forgiven, forgive. Finally, third implication of this truth of expiation is that we should put away our feelings of guilt by reminding ourselves of the gospel. Now, I want to be very clear here because this could be an unbalanced sermon if I don't say this, and I don't like unbalanced sermons, okay? So, so here's my qualification. There is a sense in which it is good for us to sometimes feel ashamed and to sometimes feel guilty when we sin. We ought, in one sense, to be ashamed of our sins, 
And remembering our own sins, keeping in mind our own sins, keeps us humble. It keeps us thankful for Christ. The more you know of your own sin, the more amazed you are at the mercy of God. But you should never let your guilt paralyze you. We should come to Christ and we should embrace anew His forgiveness every day. Through Christ, our consciences are made pure and are set free from the turmoil of guilt. Your sense of the love of God for you in the gospel, your sense that you are forgiven because of Christ in the gospel should always be stronger than any feelings you have of guilt. Grace should always trump guilt in your feelings as a Christian if your feelings are in accord with truth. Dear friend, if your past sins are weighing on you in such a way that they are keeping you from serving God, if your guilt is paralyzing you from loving others, if your guilt is leading you to despair, then what you need is increased faith. Believe what He's done for you. Believe objectively what the Bible says Christ has done for you and who you now are as a Christian. When the Bible says your sins are forgiven, you don't have the right to contradict that. God's verdict trumps yours. Christ can take the worst of sinners and he can do great and mighty things for the kingdom of God. If guilt has left you feeling powerless, I'm going to be blunt, get over your pity party and embrace the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Get off of your knees and start serving and loving for the sake of the kingdom. Don't let guilt paralyze you when the gospel of grace is screaming at you. You are clean. You are counted righteous in the sight of God. You are free. Our confidence is not in ourselves, but in what Christ has done for us and what Christ is now doing in us. So put your paralyzing guilt away and embrace freedom in Christ. And then use that freedom to serve God by serving his people and living in a way that pleases him. So even now, as we come to this table and as we take the bread and as we take the cup, Let us embrace Christ afresh in our hearts and let us rejoice that our guilt before God is forever gone.